you guys, Flickers of Fear time once again. So if you guys remember, I don't think it was all that long ago. It was probably like in the past year, I want to say. Um, I read and reviewed the Scott B. Smith novel from 1993, which is called A Simple Plan. Uh, and I think that I mentioned in there, I don't know if I mentioned this, but if I didn't, I should have, that it's actually probably one of the best thrillers ever written, or at least like one of the best thrillers that I've ever read, that's for sure. So um, I think I mentioned like on my review of it, and I was thinking about it while I was reading it too. Um, um, but, you know, obviously there was a really, really good film adaptation of it, but I hadn't seen the movie in such a long time that I thought that it was about time that I did a revisit on it, like, for the series, especially while the book was still, like, fairly fresh in my mind. Like I said, I don't remember exactly when I read it, but it was, I think, within the past year. So, like, the details of it were still pretty fresh, you know? So the movie came out in 1998, uh, and I'm gonna have to say, like... This poor movie had like a very torturous journey, like I guess a lot of movies do, but um, a really torturous journey to the screen. And it's kind of like, it was kind of amazing for me to read about, especially considering how awesome like the final movie turned out. Because I think a lot of times like when, you know, movies are this much of a shit show, like behind the scenes, like, it, you know, you can kind of see it in the final product, but you can't really in this one, like this movie turned out really good. So the director and producer, Mike Nichols, actually bought the rights to the novel before it was even published. I think he had read like a short story of Scott Smith's and knew that he was working on uh, the novel, but it hadn't been published yet. So he bought the rights to it. And Mike Nichols was actually going to direct it himself, but you know, shit went back and forth. Like he ended up leaving the project to do other things. And then the screenplay, which actually Scott Smith adapted um, himself, like from his own novel, uh, it kind of changed hands multiple times. Um, everybody at one point or another, there was like Ben Stiller was going to direct it. John Dahl was going to direct it. John Borman was going to direct it. They were just kind of like, yeah, it just got passed from hand to hand, like over the years. Uh, and eventually the director's chair went to the awesome Sam Raimi, who'd actually been working, he'd, he'd kind of wanted to do something more like uh, grounded or more character driven, like right around this time period, because obviously he was best known at this point for, you know, like the Evil Dead movies, and he had just like, done like Dark Man. So he does kind of these more stylized, like comic book over the top type of movies. And he wanted to do something that was like more realistic, like more like a character drama. So he was like, really excited to get on board and do this movie. Now, the cast went through some upheavals as well. Uh, I believe Nicolas Cage was supposed to play the lead at uh, one stage, which I guess that would have worked. I'm not really sure. Like, it's hard to imagine it with anybody else in it than who ended up in it, but, you know, I guess that might have worked out. And actually, I think that for a while, like, Anne Heche was considered for the role of Sarah, who's like the main character's wife. But finally, at long last, uh, the absolutely stellar cast that we see on the screen now uh, came together. You got Bill Paxton as Hank Mitchell, who's like the main character, Billy Bob Thornton as his brother Jacob, uh, Bridget Fonda as his wife Sarah, and Brent Briscoe as Lou, like the friend. So Billy Bob Thornton, uh, and I'm going to say justifiably, got a Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar nomination for this performance. And I think that even like Bill Paxton's performance, he, I guess he was like apparently in the running for like a best actor nomination, but he didn't get one, unfortunately, even though I think he totally deserved it. Uh, Scott Smith, um, incidentally was also nominated for best original screenplay, although he didn't win. Now, in spite of 
almost universal critical acclaim when this movie came out. Uh, and it's just this massive laundry list of various awards and nominations that it got. Like, seriously, go to the Wikipedia page. It's just like this huge thing. Um, the movie very sadly, for some reason, like underperformed at the box office. Like it went into like limited release. I think it was released like at the film festivals, like in September of 1998. And then it went into limited release, like in December. But I don't know, for some reason, like, it just didn't seem to catch on. It didn't even make its $17 million budget back. Like, I think it only made, like, $16.8 million. And that, finding out that fact is just, like, mind-blowing to me. Because A Simple Plan, the movie, just like the book, um, is really one of the most perfect crime thrillers ever made. I mean, it is just, like, this gut-wrenching escalation of suspense that even though it's two hours it just seems like it flies by like it never lets up for a second and it has easily some of the best best acting performances like in any film from that year you know what i mean or actually maybe even any film from the 90s so because the screenplay was adapted by the book's author scott smith uh it was actually cut down to its runtime of two hours the initial draft of the script the, the movie would have been four and a half hours long which you know that, that might have been a little bit of a slog i'm gonna lie um the plot of the movie is actually very very similar to that of the book with only like a few changes some of them minor some of them kind of major. One of the minor changes is that the setting was moved from Ohio in the novel to Minnesota in the movie because um, I guess because they needed to film it like where there was a lot of snow and I guess like in Ohio at that time period there wasn't enough snow so they had to go to like Minnesota and shoot it there. Um, there were also a couple situations that were in the book, which I don't want to spoil, but just like vaguely, uh, in the book, there was a situation where Hank like lost a great deal of money, like in a condominium sale scam type thing. Um, there's also like the very, very gruesome murder of a convenience store clerk. And there's also kind of like a thing at the end with like the fate of Hank and Sarah's baby. Uh, those three scenes that were in the book were omitted from the movie. Um, I'm assuming probably for time constraint reasons and because Sam Raimi did actually come out and say that he wanted to soften the character of Hank somewhat like and make him more sympathetic than he was in the novel. But the rest of the plot, like other than that, like follows the book very, very closely. So the, so the story is that in this small town in Minnesota uh, where Hank, the main character, he's kind of like significantly more educated than most of the other residents in town because like I said it's a very very small like farm like rural community so he's the only one that's like been to college and all this other kind of stuff and he's like a little bit I don't want to say he's a little bit of a snot about it like in the book he kind of is like he's snottier in the book than he is in the movie but he does have a little bit of kind of like you know, or, or at least people perceive that he has, like, a slight, like, superiority complex, maybe, because he uses, like, big words and everything like that. So he's working as an accountant in a feed store in this town. Uh, his wife, Sarah, who is pregnant, uh, she works at the town's library. Now, Hank's brother, Jacob, who's played by uh, Billy Bob Thornton, has some kind of, like, learning disabilities. Uh, he's unemployed. And he spends most of his kind of dead-end existence uh, just getting drunk with his kind of obnoxious and also unemployed uh, friend, Lou, who Hank can really, like, barely stand. Like, they can... They're always, like, sniping at one another. Like I, like I said, there's a lot of resentment between Lou, like, thinking that Hank is, like, too big for his britches, essentially. So he's always, like, talking about, ooh, those big words he uses and blah, blah, blah. So there's, like, a lot of resentment between the two of them. 
Now, Hank and Jacob's father died recently. Um, I think in the book it was both parents because I think it was an accident, but I think in the movie it's just their dad. Um, so Jacob actually lives on the family's farm, like in the farmhouse, and he's kind of hoping one day to be able to um, kind of open the farm back up again because I guess it's fallen on hard times and they don't really do any farming on the farm. So he wants to kind of follow in his father's footsteps and become a farmer, but he doesn't really have the money to, you know, get started. So one day, while Hank, Jacob, and Lou are coming back, I think they were visiting the cemetery, like where uh, the where their dad was buried, uh, Fox actually runs in front of their truck and they kind of swerve and it runs them off the road into the snow and, you know. And at that point, like Jacob's dog, whose name is Mary Beth, just like in the book, um, runs off after the fox. Like, so he runs, runs off into the woods. So while the three guys are looking for the dog, who's fine, by the way, because <laughs> I know. Because I always worry about that, too. The dog is fine, okay? Nothing bad happens to the dog. Uh, so, yeah. So, they're looking for the dog, and they come across a crashed plane, which is partially buried in a snowbank. Upon investigating this crashed plane, they discover not only that the pilot of the plane is dead, and it's pretty grody because, like, all the fucking crows are, like, pecking out his eyes and shit like that, as they would. You know, crows got to eat, too. But also, uh, the plane contains a duffel bag that is stuffed with $4.4 million in $100 bills. So Hank is uh, pretty immediately and probably wisely uh, very wary. And so he wants to give the money to the authorities. I mean, he tells the other guys, look, this money belongs to somebody. And therefore, eventually, this somebody will come looking for it. Jacob and Lou, though, um, both of whom are, like, a lot more desperate for money than Hank is. Like, Hank's not rich, but it's like he does have a little bit more, like, middle class type of existence where the other two are just, like, these unemployed, like, losers. So, um, so the two of them, they argue that it's like, well, it's like, look, it's, it's in a duffel bag. Like, who does that? This is from a crime. Like, it's probably, like, a drug dealer or something like that. And it's like, probably nobody even knows it's here. No one's gonna know it's missing. No one's gonna come looking for it or call the cops for it because it's probably from a drug trade, you know what I mean? So it's like, we should totally just take it. So even though Hank is really seemed at first like to want to do the right thing, to be honest, it doesn't really take all that much persuading like to talk him into keeping the money. But Hank has a couple of conditions uh, if they keep it. He says, um, okay, we can keep it, but I'm going to hang on to it. None of us can spend any of it or tell anybody anything about it. It's like even your wives and shit like that. Um, he's like, I'm going to hang on to it until like the plane is found, like after the spring thaw. So it's going to be like a few months. And they're like, once the plane is found, if nobody mentions that any money was missing from the plane, then we will divide the loot evenly and you know three ways and then we will just very very quietly leave town all separately so that nobody knows like where we went or what we're up to so to alleviate any suspicion like where we got this money from now he says if somebody does mention the missing money like when the plane is found um then hank says i'm gonna burn the cash so we won't get busted in case somebody comes looking for it now jacob and lou are pretty reluctant to uh concede to these conditions but um they ultimately end up agreeing they kind of have to because hank's like look if you don't i'm just gonna call the cops right now and report this incident and none of us will get jack shit so it's you know it's it's basically an ultimatum and they're like okay fine but of course the problems start to arise almost immediately 
Um, even though, here's one thing, even though Hank uh, very explicitly said that he wasn't going to tell his wife Sarah about the money and that Lou better not tell his wife either. Jacob, Jacob doesn't have a wife or a girlfriend. Literally the first words out of Hank's mouth, like upon coming home that evening, are kind of along the lines of, hey, honey, um, what would you do? <laughs> If you found, just theoretically, like if you found a random bag of probably untraceable drug money in the woods, for example, just throwing that out there, what would you do? Now, naturally, Sarah says, well, you know, I would do the right thing and turn it in. It's stealing. It's not my money. You know, it doesn't matter where it came from. But, uh, you know, again, not surprisingly, she pretty quickly like changes her tune when he actually like dumps this huge pile of cash like on the table in front of her. Like her eyes just fucking light up. You know what I mean? Um, and actually she really goes all in on the subterfuge, like as soon as she sees the, the cash, I mean, she starts like throwing out suggestions. I mean, cause it's clearly girls been watching some like true crime shit and everything like that. Um, cause she's like, oh, we should do this, that, and the other, like to improve our chances of getting away with the theft. You know what I mean? Like she's like criminal mastermind all of a sudden. Now, one of the suggestions that she gives, which actually kind of sort of sounds reasonable on its face, but ends up, spoiler alert, having terrible, terrible consequences is that they should return a small portion of the money, specifically like half a million dollars, to the plane. Because Sarah reasons, again, you know, that's, this is not crazy to think this, that if somebody is looking for the plane and they find it, um, then they won't suspect that anybody took any of the money since nobody in their right mind like that wanted to rob it would leave half a million dollars sitting there, you know what I mean? So she's like, well, maybe that'll get whoever it is like off our backs. So Hank's like, okay, that actually does sound like a pretty good idea. So he actually goes back to the plane to put some of the money back. But during the course of doing this, various circumstances unfold that tragically ends up leading to a murder, which inevitably leads to a cover-up of said murder. And that leads to just more and more dire consequences later on. I mean, the whole thing just like snowballs and snowballs and snowballs as they have to keep like covering up like the worst shit that they did like before, you know what I mean? So from that point forward, like the plot really begins to thicken big time as the three men and two women, because yes, Lou told his wife about the money too, even though he said that he wouldn't. Um, they try to keep the existence of the money a secret and in the course of doing this, start developing really, really like a uh, deep mistrust of one another's motives. And really their, uh, all of their morality just starts to uh, erode very, very precipitously. It's like, it's, it's really something. So the best thing about A Simple Plan, like both the book and the movie, is this, just this steadily ratcheting horror. Like the way that you're kind of forced to watch helplessly as these formerly decent people, like just regular people, just lower themselves to the worst actions imaginable in order to keep their hands on the loot. And it keeps necessitating them doing like worse and worse shit. It's gripping because it's so insidiously believable. Like, while, you know, I I'll give you that it might not unfold exactly this way in real life, while it's happening in the movie or while you're reading it in the book, you absolutely buy into it. And the hell of it is that you can see at every step along the way, like how Hank and the others 
kind of slowly paint themselves into a corner of their own making. Like you can see the reasoning behind every single thing that they do. And even though you're just kind of like, oh, I don't know if I would have done that. Like you don't know because you're not in that situation, but you can totally see why those characters acted the way they did. It's there's no, there's never a case of just like, oh, nobody would do that. It's like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, people, some people probably would do that. And it's just like, it's kind of like hellish, like watching them because you know that it's just going to end like horribly. They just constantly have to do more and more monstrous things in order to keep the money as well as hide their previous crimes because like i said you know in the course of hiding the money people end up getting murdered people end up like all of this terrible shit happens and so they have to keep like covering up the cover-up you know what i mean so it just gets like worse and worse and snowballs like i said so i mean even though the character of hank in the movie is a lot more likable and sympathetic than hank from the novel who actually did uh several very very terrible things that were left out of the film entirely i mean he does do terrible things in the movie too but he did like way worse shit in the book um Um, But in the movie, he's still absolutely a villain. Although, in the movie, he's more a heartbreaking kind of villain because he seemed like such a nice, ordinary dude, like, at the beginning. But the promise of all this money and, like, security and how it's going to improve the lives of him and his wife and the baby that's on the way, it ends up, like, straight up turning him evil. Like, he ends up just doing, like I said, these just monstrous things where you wouldn't think that just a regular person would end up doing that kind of stuff. And the same kind of thing, like, applies to his wife, Sarah, who, you know, at first she was, like, appalled at the very idea of keeping this money because it's stealing and it's not theirs. But she eventually becomes so invested in the whole plot that she just has these very reasonable sounding suggestions and the way that it just keeps escalating, it makes her just as culpable like for the resulting shit show uh, as Hank is. So, I mean, at its heart, obviously, A Simple Plan is just a morality tale, but watching it unfold is just really, really captivating. And I think a lot of that is just because the acting in it is just like, it's so goddamn good. I mean, all the acting in this is so good. I think that these might be, I don't know, like, I'd have to go back and say, but I think these might be my favorite performances ever by Billy Bob Thornton and Bridget Fonda. And I think, in my opinion, this is actually one of two of Bill Paxton's best performances of his career. The other one being in Frailty, which he also directed, by the way. But there, everybody is fucking great in this. And I just really think, and it's a great story, too, but I think the acting performances really, like, just put it away, like, a big notch above. So yeah, I mean, this movie is just like riveting and horrifying. It plays out almost like a Greek tragedy, matter of fact, like, because it seems like everything is sort of faded from the beginning and like nothing can be done to change it. Like once the ball starts rolling, it's just rolling downhill and it's like nobody's going to be able to do anything to like stop the outcome. You know what I mean? Uh, Because, you know, the characters all become kind of slaves to their actions with one evil deed like necessitating the next worst one and like you know on and on until like I said you just get to the bottom of the hill and everything just explodes and the biggest gut punch of all like comes kind of like after all of the madness is over even though like Hank and Sarah at least kind of are allowed to return to some semblance of their previous lives they now have to do that with the knowledge of all the fucked up shit that they did 
and deal with the fact that their formerly happy, satisfactory lives ha- are now, like, tainted. Like, they're not good anymore because of all the shit they had to do. Because everything was just been tainted by greed and the knowledge of the shit that they did, like, in the service of that greed. So now, like, their lives are significant, like, they're significantly worse off than they were before they found the money, you know what I mean? So, now, while I will say that the book is a lot more brutal than the movie, just in terms of, like, how bad shit gets and, like, how, like, some of the, you know, evil uh, deeds that some of the characters do that were a few of which were left out of the movie. I do understand why Sam Raimi chose to kind of tone down the events for the movie just a little bit, and I think it was actually the right decision. I mean, not only would some of the more fucked up incidents from the book have, I think, made the movie a little bit less believable. I mean, they work totally fine in the book, but, you know, like I said, it's, you know, it's it's different, like, doing things in a book and in a movie. Sometimes you can get away with a lot more stuff than you, in a book than you can in a movie, and I think this is a case where that happened, and it's good that Sam Raimi recognized that, maybe. I think, too, that, like I said, he wanted to make Hank a little bit more relatable and maybe, like, slightly less evil, like, you felt kind of more bad for him, whereas in the book... He was kind of, he was more of a dick, you know what I mean? And, he, and and I think, like, the the horrifying part of the book came from just, like, even though he was a, just a regular dude at the beginning, but just, like, how fucking bad it got and how he got to this place, you know what I mean? Whereas in the movie, I think it's a lot more emotionally affecting and a lot more tragic because he seemed like such a nice man and he ended up doing just horrible, horrible shit. And you kind of put yourself in the shoes of that. It's like, oh my God, like, would I do the same thing? Like, this escalating fucking shit show, would the same thing happen, like, if I found all that money, you know what I mean? And it's totally possible that it could. So both the book and the movie are absolutely worth your time if you like thrillers, because like I said, it's probably like the best ones I ever saw slash read. Um, Although they are very similar plot-wise, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend both of them, and I think probably if you like the movie, you should read the book and vice versa, because the tone in both the book and the movie is slightly different. Like, they kind of come at it from a little bit of a different angle. Like, I think each of them brings, like, a a little bit of a distinct spin, like, on what is essentially the same story. But they're both absolutely really good. So if you've read the book or seen the movie or both or whatever, uh, let me know what you think about them in the comments. And that'll do it for this Flickers of Fear. I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye. (laughs) 